Hey everybody, welcome again to F This Movie, the official podcast of FThisMovie.com, movie love for movie lovers. My name is Patrick Bromley and I'm super excited for this week's show because we're talking about A Knight's Tale with the most, uh, what's a word to describe a knight? Knightly? Knightly, the most knightly man I know, Rob DiCristino. Hey Rob. Hey Patrick, speaking of which, for the rest of this podcast, I'd like you to refer to me only as the seeker of serenity, the protector of Italian virginity, the enforcer <laughs> of our Lord God. That's what I'd like to be referred to as. I like uh, the protector of Italian virginity. Yeah, unfortunately, that's my own. So, <laughs> <laughs> in my case. Uh, so, we are going to be talking about a knight's tale this week. Um,. One thing I want to quickly mention is that uh, beginning this week, it should be up this Saturday, if you're listening to this, the week that the podcast comes out. Um, so this Saturday would be the 17th of August. Um, we are now going to be the home of Mike Delaney's Splathouse podcast, which if you've never listened to, it's really, really fun. I encourage you to go back and listen to some past episodes. I've been on there a couple times giving recommendations for other movies you guys should watch, but we're going to be running those on Saturdays. Um, Mike's thinking was, well, we don't post content on Saturday, so why not give people something extra on the weekend? So we're going to start running Splathouse occasionally beginning this Saturday with an episode on Tony Scott's The Hunger. So I'm excited for that. Uh, Rob, have you seen anything good lately? Uh, I've seen things. Um, I think today, <laughs> uh, as we're recording this, I think today my review of The Kitchen posted. It did. Um, I really wanted to like The Kitchen. <laughs> um, I really, uh, you know, it's it's it's. There's all kinds of reasons, as I outlined in my review, why we should like this movie and why I want everybody you know to go see it and all that. But ultimately, it's just too clunky and underdeveloped. And I really, I was, I I keep getting into conversations with people about it, and a lot of people seem to agree that it would have done much better as like a Netflix series or like a limited HBO kind of miniseries. Um, performances are interesting. I love Elizabeth Moss, as I mentioned, um, but I ultimately would have liked a little bit more out of it. I won't say much more about it because I wrote a review, so you can read that. I did not realize until I read your review that it's based on a comic book. Yeah, apparently it's like an eight-part miniseries. I have not read that either, um, but that's that kind of, to me, really reinforced, like, oh, wow, this this plot line, this plot line, this plot line. You can tell some of the stuff was condensed for the movie, okay. and I would have liked to have seen a lot more of that. I think I was a little bit too hard on Melissa McCarthy in my review um, because I wrote it last week and I've been thinking about it. Um, the biggest, my biggest complaint is that she's not in it enough. That actually should be more of her storyline. It's not that her storyline is bad. It's that because um, she's sort of a mother turned mob boss, and you know, that's sort of the theme here. It's these three women who were um, uh, wives to basically mob soldiers who go to jail, and they're kind of trying to make their way. Um, and each one of them has like a little bit of a different approach to that based on who they are and, and their sensibilities. Um, and the Melissa McCarthy story that I thought could have used the most out of all of them. And I would have liked to have seen that a lot more in a, in a longer series. So maybe they'll adapt it again or something, but um, ultimately I, I didn't really love it. I love Donald Gleason. Um, he's really good in it. It's a movie and I have only seen the trailer. I haven't seen the movie. I thought the trailer was like four jokes short of a Saturday night live sketch, but I would accuse it of being hastily put into production to capitalize on the success of Widows were it not already based on a comic book and probably in production before Widows ever came out. But it was hard to see the trailer and not think, boy, this seems familiar. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, I, I read a lot of stuff that people were comparing it, even in the theater that I saw it at, people were talking about comparing it to Widows. And, um, you know, on the surface, they're very similar thematically and in terms of, they're very, very different movies. I think Widows is a much better movie. Okay. Uh, what else besides The Kitchen? Uh, I also saw uh, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Yes, do um, tell. Which was I enjoyed quite a bit. Um, I was talking to Adam about this. Adam and I are in this weird place where we're just, I don't know, we're just not agreeing on movies lately. <laughs> um, but uh, I really liked the, it, it, I, I think I sent a text to you guys, like it's very good like starter horror. Like it's very good like intermediate preteen like maybe Rosie might be a little young for, it, but maybe Charlie might kind of be almost on the cusp of it. Cause it's kind of, 
it's it's less intense than like it but it's maybe more intense than like goosebumps you know okay. it's that middle sort of road and i did not grow up with the book series i was that was that something i was supposed to have grown up with absolutely Okay. Okay. So everybody else in my life apparently knew this. I knew Goosebumps when I was a kid. I, I read stuff like that, but I, I guess I just missed it. Um, I predate Goosebumps, so yeah. Scary Stories was my Goosebumps, but maybe it was already kind of I think done and gone like, by the time you came around. Probably because I think Scary Stories was like late '80s or mid '80s, yeah. whereas Goosebumps I think was probably more '90s. So yeah, it would have been slightly more my time. Um, I, I, I've read a lot of stuff about it. A lot of people would have preferred it to be a traditional anthology with like a framing device um, where you just go into each story. The movie itself does something a little different where it, it rather than doing a wraparound story, it kind of does an actual plot with a group of kids and each one of the kids kind of encounters one of the stories, um, which it has, there's problems with that. It doesn't always work because tonally it kind of goes all over the place. But I thought there was some really good stuff in it. Um, I thought that a lot of the practical effects and a lot of the scares were really good. There's a couple images, um, the jangly man and the there's a there's a sort of a, um, a woman, a ghostly looking woman in a hallway. There's a sort of red hallway scene, which, again, I don't have a frame of reference for the books. So if you know these stories, I'm, I'm butchering them. I'm sorry. But um, there's a lot of really, really, really good preteen kind of you know adolescent level scares in it um there's stuff that's just creepy enough to be unsettling but not so gory and violent that you can't show your kids um i I really enjoyed it i mean it's got its problems but i I really enjoyed it and one of the things i I think i told you guys at a really fun theater anecdote where i i was i was at a preview screening for it and um Right before the movie started, three, I would say maybe 11 to 12-year-old boys came and sat down in the row next to me. And, you know, of course, I'm like, oh, okay, you know, because they're all on their phones and stuff. Um, but then they started watching the movie. And about halfway through, one of the boys turned to his friends and kind of explained the concept of the final girl to them. Like, oh, she's going to live and she's going to figure it out. and She's going to do this and that. And he kind of, without knowing all the names of the tropes and stuff but it was really really cool i kind of walked out of that screening like i just saw a really good preteen horror movie and the preteen kids were like smart about it and appreciated it and i was like all right this is good i kind of went sort of skipping out of the theater like it's gonna be okay you know and of course 20 minutes later something happened that destroyed all that (laughs) i'm surprised you made it 20 minutes that's actually impressive i I opened twitter and i was like oh never mind (laughs) but i enjoyed scary stories a lot um yeah, again, having no frame of reference for the stories um, themselves, I thought it was I thought it was really effective. It was the movie that I really wanted to go see this past weekend, and unfortunately, we didn't because, as you said, my daughter's probably a little too young for it, and my son is kind of a wuss. Uh, <laughs> I tried to convince the two of them to come see Dora with me because supposedly Dora is pretty good, and uh, they neither one were having it, so I made it to no movies this weekend. I did not get to Dora either, but. Uh, you could tell Charlie that there are spiders in the movie. There are no spider men okay. in uh, scary stories, but there are spiders, if that he, helps at all. He does have a weird fascination with all kinds of insects. And I know spiders aren't technically insects, but, you know, uh, insects and bugs and anything that crawls, he's he's way into it. So maybe that will help. He might not like them as much after some of the imagery in this movie, but that's all I'll say. Interesting. Well, there goes that uh, hobby of his, so... Speaking of things and not liking them, and uh, <laughs> what a segue! <laughs> I also saw Serenity. Uh, sure, the movie based on the TV show Firefly. Firefly. Got it. Go right, ahead. Yes, the Firefly follow up. Yeah, so you know all the familiar characters are back. You know, uh, no, um, uh, the Matthew McConaughey and Hathaway <laughs> disaster. Uh, Serenity popped up on Amazon Prime this week. I know a lot of people have been watching it. Um, uh, JB and Adam have talked a lot about it already on the show, and JB wrote that great piece on it a couple months back, so I won't go too much into it, but I think I, I was watching it, and I texted you guys, like, I, is this movie an algebra problem? Like, <laughs> is, is this movie, because it is deeply confusing in a fascinating way. I actually um, would really recommend, uh, I've had my ups and downs with this podcast, but that the How Did This Get Made episode on Serenity Um I would really recommend it because they, they actually do get into some pretty interesting stuff in terms of just what this movie is. And um, I'm really, really disappointed because I found out after watching it that it was written and directed by Stephen Knight, who made Locke, 
uh, with Tom Hardy, which is locks your movie. Really, one of my favorite movies <laughs> the last couple of years. I really, I mean, I know whatever. Uh, I want to make jokes about Locke, but they would spoil Serenity. <laughs> did you know that Locke is actually but I'm, i can't i can't i don't yeah. want to spoil serenity for anyone yeah yeah um i won't say anything more about it other than it's just I, it's not news to anybody who's been following the movie to know that it is a fascinating mess um not entertaining not enjoyable but fascinating uh so if you have two hours um and alcohol um, <laughs> And you're losing your will to live. Check out Serenity with Matthew McConaughey. I still haven't seen it, but I do have a great text thread from Adam where he describes the movie to me. And every time I think he's gotten to the crazy part, uh, he's like, no, 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 not done. (laughs) And (laughs) continues. Um, a, a, A reader named Jeff, last name just is S-C-H. I'm guessing that's an abbreviation, um, commented in response to JB's article when it posted back in January with kind of a an explanation or a defense of the movie, which I thought was really interesting. Um, might be worth looking at. I don't know. I, I can see a world – once you see the movie, you go, okay, I get – what he was going for. I get what he thought this would be. Um, but it's one of those fascinating examples of something just not translating. And like JB mentioned, um, in his piece, like the twist comes, the twist is revealed in a place in a movie where twists aren't usually revealed. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's kind of all I'll say about it, but I'll wait for you till you see it because uh, I know you're going to sit down and watch it as soon as we're done here, right? It's first on my list, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh, it's the next thing I'm going to do. Um, anything besides those three? Uh, no, no, that's it. I'm good. Okay. Um, what do I have? Uh, I lied when I said we didn't make it to the movies this weekend because we did manage to go see Crawl finally. Uh, I'd been hearing such good things about Crawl and had not gotten a chance to see it yet, so I'm glad that Erica and I were finally able to. It is a really good execution of its premise. You know, two people trapped in a house during a hurricane. Here come gators. And uh, it's very good at executing that. I heard maybe it was on Shockwave. Somebody was talking about, like, oh, it's an interesting mix of Sam Raimi as producer, kind of his more playful style and Alex Aja's sort of intensity. And I think that's a really good assessment. I I think the movie plays those two things a lot better than something like Piranha 3D, which I like Piranha 3D, but it's a little bit, Alex Aja maybe doesn't know how to do comedy. And so much of that movie is straight comedy. Um, and this is not, this is just a little bit more playful, uh, than one of his more intense horror movies like the Hills have eyes or high tension or something like that. Um, I will admit that I have a hard time getting past the CG gators and it's very good CG. It's like state of the art, but I can't ever find them threatening because no matter what, it is always a cartoon. And I wish that maybe they had used some models or even once or twice a shot of an actual gator. I know that they probably just couldn't find one that was big enough for what they wanted to do in the movie. After a while, I softened a little bit and it wasn't pulling me out of the movie as much. But the first few appearances of the gators, um, all of my enjoyment of the movie kind of got sucked out the window because I just was reminded like, oh, but there's nothing there. And I'm just looking at a cartoon. There's always that interesting thing with with CGI creatures and stuff where it to me anyway it really depends on the tone of the movie. Like you mentioned Piranha 3D which with Aja, um, which Aja also, also directed and um that was a movie that Adam brought to me when he came to stay with me last year uh and changed my life uh watching it because I really <laughs> enjoyed it quite a bit. Um in that movie the CGI piranhas and stuff it's a little the, the fakeness and all that is a little bit more in line with the tone of the movie. Does crawl kind of have a problem because the movie itself is pitched as a little bit more serious and playful and you kind of need more. Yeah. It's, it's supposed to be scarier when they show up and yeah, I don't remember it ever bothering me in Piranha because who cares, right? I don't need the threat to feel real in Piranha, but in crawl, the threat absolutely should feel real and the actors are giving it their all. And I, I just have to imagine it was a miserable movie to shoot just given all of the, 
how wet everything is and they're just they're <laughs> submerged in water the entire movie and they're trapped in this house and just I just was watching it like, boy, acting isn't always like the most fun job. And and the two actors, um, Barry Pepper and your girl from the Pirates movie, uh, Kaya Kaya Scotolero. I'm I completely oh, messed oh, yes, up yes, her yes. name, and I apologize to all of her fans, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, she's really good in the movie. You know, I, they give enough of a backstory to create a relationship. There are dramatic stakes. Like it does so many things right. And it's really, really well directed. My hang up is just on the CG gators, which is probably nitpicking. And I apologize. When you said earlier, when you started, um, you said something like I couldn't get past the CG gators. And I yeah. kept thinking of you like in a video game, like trying to get Unable past, the, to CG, get past like, the CG, like, well, because they're so big. And that would happen because I am not good at video games at all. Right, 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 right. So two movies in our What Have You Seen Lately in which the characters uh, spend most of the movie completely uh, soaked uh, and wet, uh, which is uh, Crawl uh, in When It's a Miserable Way and Serenity when it's a Matthew McConaughey sexy way. Oh, right. Um, Yeah, McConaughey spends most of that movie dripping wet. Um, (laughs) So you get two flavors here. Um, (laughs) Check out both both movies. Uh, The twist in Crawl, surprisingly, the exact same. (laughs) <laughs> that should just be the twist in every movie from every now on <laughs> i don't i don't want any other twist um I, I haven't been seeing a lot because i've been unfortunately watching uh the underworld movies for an upcoming episode of corpse club because i promised heather i would and it is not working out for me these movies <laughs> these movies are not for me uh, I know that they have their fans. I'm only through the first three, which I've seen before. I'm now venturing into unknown underworld territory with the last two movies because those will be new to me. But um, there are five altogether. There are five altogether. Okay. Uh, all of them probably January releases, and uh, I will say of the three that I've watched, they have gotten progressively better. Uh, the second one's a little better than the first because it's just got more stuff going on. It's shorter, which helps. My God, the first one was over two hours, but it feels like four. Um, it's gorier. It just has more stuff. And then the third one is a prequel that takes place like hundreds of years before the first two has a new director and, uh, is a considerably better movie than the first two. So, that one is Rise of the Lichens? That is Rise of the... Because, you listen, know. we've all been wondering, hey, how did these lichens rise? At which point in the series does the twist happen where you find out that's, the, seren- uh, the serenity twist? Halfway, <laughs> that's halfway through five, which makes you okay. reconsider the previous four movies. Got it, got it, okay. Um, I've only ever seen the first two Underworlds. I, I did not continue on with the series after that. So. No, and you made the best choice for your life. <laughs> Uh, I listen, if people like them, I get it. I watch them and I'm like, I understand why these movies have fans, right? It's just, I'm not one of them. So if you're a fan of this, it's all cool. It's all working for you. It's like, yeah, bring on another one. Give me more people in leather shooting guns, make all the cinematography blue. Uh, I, I get it. If you're digging on it, I saw somebody at flashback weekend cosplaying as Kate Beckinsale from underworld. So I know these movies have fans. Um, I am not yet one, but I do have two more movies to go. And it, perhaps if it continues on this upward curve, maybe by part five, I will be fully on board and will completely reverse my position on the Underworld films. I don't know yet. Well, keep us updated. because See, the thing is, I already know how the lichens rose, and I don't know where to go from there. <laughs> Got to see them fall, Patrick. Got to have them fall. <laughs> Perhaps. You got to know at what point it all becomes that Serenity spoiler that I can't spoil. <laughs> it's like there's so many jokes I can't make. Um, no. The last one does star Charles Dance. Uh, uh, all right. What's the last one? Is the last one Blood Wars? Blood Wars. I'm looking oh, at it. God. I got to watch a movie called Blood Wars. <laughs> They're called Death Dealers throughout the movie. Like. Kate Beckinsale is a death dealer. Isn't that just a fancy way of saying murderer? <laughs> yeah, but it's like professional murder. <laughs> just, dealers. It's I, equity. I, uh, right. He deals about murder. 
And then, so so you've seen Underworld, Underworld uh, Evolution, and then Awakening. I haven't seen Awakening no. yet. Rise of Lycans is three. So Awakening yeah. and Blood Wars are the next two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm pretty and excited. That, only one of those is Len Wiseman. Uh, which one? Is he Blood Wars? Uh, no, he's Awakening. He came back for Awakening and then left? He's back for Awakening. Blood Wars is Anna Forster? A female director. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe Rosalie Lewis can write about it. <laughs> uh, <for laughs> then she can oh, watch Outland. it for me. She's on Outlander. She does uh, a show show. that has lots of fans and I've never seen. See, there you go. All right. So maybe, you know, high hopes, right? Yeah. Maybe now that the lichens have rose, you know, anything (laughs) is possible. Now I get to see how the blood wars happen and I get to see things awaken. (laughs) So these are conversations after this. Yeah, really? Do they adults, Patrick? We are both adults. I just have to believe that somewhere in the underworld offices, they just have like a giant, poster board with <laughs> shitty Mad Libs and they throw a dart and they're like yeah, landed on Blood Wars, that's the title for the next one uh, Blood Wars. they already had Evolution and Awakening crossed out So, if the next one is Resurgence or... Uh... <laughs> it's gonna be it's... actually, you know what, we should uh, give the Underworld series at least a little bit of credit for not having their prequel movie be called Origins even though it's called Rise of the Lycans yeah I want more movies. I think should have the the subheading "Rise of the Lichens." <laughs> Hobbs and Shaw: colon, Rise of the Lichens. <laughs> Better movie. <laughs> Widows: Rise of the Lichens. <laughs> uh, all right, let's talk about a Knight's Tale: colon, Rise of the Lichens. Right, uh, right, right, right. From two thousand one, written and directed by Academy Award winning screenwriter. Brian Helgeland, um, you had texted me a week or two ago and said, hey, I noticed there's no podcast on A Knight's Tale. So maybe talk me through your thought process on how you wanted to uh, do a show on A Knight's Tale. Uh, so A Knight's Tale is uh, one of those, I think our friends Brian and Elric would refer to this as a handshake movie. Um, for me and my group of friends, I'm really, really into this movie. This came out in 01, so we were high school freshmen. Uh, and this is one of the few kind of non star Wars movies. Um, I saw in the theater multiple times when I was a kid, cause I grew up right behind Adam and I've talked about in our column. I've grew up right behind this little kind of dirt strip mall called the McDade mall. And there was a theater, uh, in there. So I could literally walk across the trail, uh, the right, uh, train tracks and go to a movie whenever I wanted. And, you know, so I saw everything, but this was one of the only movies of that time period, the early 2000s, that I really went back to multiple times because there was just there was something about it that really made me feel. Um, it, made, it made it was one of those movies that felt like it was made for me um, because I liked the whole historical fiction thing. I liked the anachronisms of the music, which we'll get into, of course. Um, the cast was kind of a who's who of early 2000s, you know, the Shannon, the Shannon Sossaman factor. Um, I liked the dialogue. I liked the way it was written. I love the fact that Jeffrey Chaucer was just thrown in there. Um, I, I liked that a lot. I liked being, you know, being kind of a nerdy English kid, um, English, the subject, not the language, um, you know, being an English teacher now, I had this really interest uh, early on in this kind of mashing up of historical fiction. And remember, I'm 14, so I'm like, yeah, this is cool, you know. Um, I love the history and literature. It made it seem kind of cool, you know what I mean? It made it like, I could go see this cool, fun, romantic action movie with my friends and then talk about the Canterbury Tales, you know. And, oh, did you know that this is a reference to this and this? And um, So it's still a movie that my friends and I, you know, will occasionally talk about or we have, like, inside jokes that kind of relate to it. You know, someone spontaneously yells their name, you know, for seemingly no reason. Um, or yells, William, you know. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was just I just it was one of those movies that, you know, you and I have kind of found this pocket of movies that we podcast about, like sort of Josie and Pussycats kind of type movies where we both sort of have this weird affection for it. And um, I don't know how you feel about A Night's Tale, but this is one of those movies that I have that similar kind of affection for where I can see all the seams, especially on this viewing. I know it's it's got issues, but there is a comfort to it that just um, really made me want to talk about it. It was a movie that was, you know, I saw advertisements for it, and it was a movie that I think we went to see opening night because it was the new movie that was opening. Like, there was nothing about A Knight's Tale from the marketing that made me really want to see it. 
I knew who Heath Ledger was because of 10 Things I Hate About You and The Patriot, which I had seen at this point, but he wasn't yet Heath Ledger. I'm sorry, Patrick, The Patriot, colon, Rise of the Lake. <laughs> Uh, it's a free country, or it will be once those lichens <laughs> rise. Um, most of the cast was new to me. Like this was the movie that put so many people on my radar: Paul Bettany, Alan Tudyk, Shannon Sossaman. For anything I saw them in for the next few years, it was like, oh, that's so and so from A Knight's Tale. So we went to see it opening night because it was the movie that was opening, not because I was dying to see it. And I think I went in like, all right, a knight's tale. What do you got for me? <laughs> and it completely won me over. Um, and I really, really, it was, it's, it's sort of the definition of a pleasant surprise, a movie that I expected very little from and got quite a bit. Um, because it's one of those movies. This is, listen, a bold, bold overstatement. So I'm going to backpedal immediately. But it reminds me a little bit of The Princess Bride in that it has a little bit of everything. I know The Princess Bride is a movie you hold very dear. I am not saying that A Knight's Tale is as good as The Princess Bride, but it is a movie that has a little bit of everything. It has some drama. It has some romance. It has some comedy. It has some action. Uh, it's a very satisfying movie. Um, and the kind of movie that doesn't really get made anymore. I totally agree. Um, I obviously agree with you that it's not The Princess Bride, but in terms of that feeling of movie, you know, movie that has everything, I would totally agree. Well, um, good. Yeah, good. You know, it's hot take and all. But yeah, <laughs> did you know Brian Helgeland? Writer of, of The Postman, got it. Mm -hmm. Writer of The Postman. Well, and also, what other movie? Uh, Besides L.A. Confidential, Mystic River, The Postman, he directed Nightmare on Elm Street, or he wrote Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, you know that's right. One? He did do one of them. Uh, did he do four? He did four. Yeah. 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 Um, he's the only, he's one of three people to win an Oscar and a Razzie in the same year. Uh, for L.A. Confidential and The Postman. Yep. Both in 97. Look at that. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Yeah, no, I would totally agree um, in terms of the movie having a little bit of everything. Um so much of that to me is this cast. Um, I, I really, really have a ton of affection for this cast. It's one of those warm blanket movies. Um, Shannon Sossman being kind of the it girl, Alan Tudyk, who of course we'd all go on to know from Firefly and stuff. And um, Paul Bettany, who everybody knows now. And Serenity. Um, but, the and, 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 right, 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 right. Serenity, colon, Rise of the Lichens. R.I.P. Wash. Mark Addy, who would go on to play King Robert Baratheon in Game of Thrones. Um, and Rufus Fred Flintstone in oh, that's the right. in the Viva Rock Vegas. That's right, because Goodman didn't come back for that one, right? No, he was – well, it was a prequel. It was more – it was sort of their Rise of the Lycans. So oh. instead of Goodman Moranis, we had Addy Baldwin. Got to see how the Flintstones rose. That's right. Rise of the Flintstones. <laughs> Underworld Rise of the Flintstones. <laughs> colon um rufus sewell who would be the villain basically and everything i do want to call out real quick um james purfoy purfoy am i saying that name right sure uh he he plays um uh the, the black prince of wales he plays uh right. prince edward right who um it, did you watch the commentary track no i didn't at all so it's it's helgelin and paul bettany and they both they say two things over and over again. One, he was voted sexiest person on the film set by the entire crew. And two, uh, they and I think this commentary was probably written uh, uh, recorded around 2001 when the movie came out or whenever the movie first came out on DVD. They keep pitching him as the next James Bond um, because he is like smoldering in this movie. There are like he's in like two scenes, but he makes such an impression. Um, I really like that performance a lot, uh, but. MVP of this movie for me, um, well, maybe not MVP, but uh, hidden gem, even though I hate that phrase, is Laura Fraser as Kate the Blacksmith. I, I never understood why Will focused so much on the princess when the blacksmith was right in front of her. <laughs> she is like, she is like. She seems to be mourning a husband and is taken off the table pretty quickly as a romantic prospect. You know what? I love a girl wielding a pair of hammers, Patrick. I, <laughs> I, I, I don't know what else I can tell you. I do love the um, moment when she becomes like part of the gang. Yeah, it's so great. And and for those of you uh, who stuck around to the end of the credits, uh, pre-Marvel post credit stinger scene also wins a farting contest between the boys. 
Oh, I did not see that scene. Got it. Just go ahead and YouTube that at the end. I'll send it to you. Uh, wow. she, yeah, she wins a farting contest. Wow. So, hammers uh, and farts. Hammers and farts. A Knight's uh, Tale, love, colon, hammers and farts. <laughs> rise of the... <laughs> Uh, I love Paul Bettany in this movie. Paul Bettany is as as uh, Jeffrey Chaucer. Um, apparently, according to the commentary track, which I listened to this morning, he had a lot of uh, he had a friend who came in and punched up a lot of his big speeches and proclamations and stuff. Uh, but the big thing, of course, is his jacket. Um, I've been wanting to go as Jeffrey Chaucer in a Knight's Tale for Halloween uh, for years now, but I cannot find that jacket. Uh, That's a costume no one would get. <laughs> it's really, excuse me, why are you homeless? <laughs> Um, but I love that. I love that, that, that a lot. So what did you, does it does being a little bit of everything, did it hold up for you on this viewing? It did. Um, I will say about two thirds or three quarters of the way through the movie, it starts to sag. I think the movie's a little over long. It's like what, two ten? It's somewhere in there. And I think at an hour 50, an hour 45, it's, and I don't like to be the person who's like, this is what the running time of a movie should be. But I do think the third act just starts to drag a little once he is reunited with his father and all that stuff. Um, But up until that point, I was like, this movie just totally works from beginning to end. This movie is... (laughs) I will say I don't think... And I like Alan Tudyk and, uh, again, R.I.P. Wash. But uh, I I don't think he's ever very funny. And he's sort of one of the comic relief elements of the film which is a problem because he's not funny. Well, the problem is, is that Paul Bettany's also in there. I feel like you all, you either have to have Tudyk or Bettany. And I feel like Bettany upstages him so much that yeah. Tudyk basically, basically just gets, you know, the angry, you know, he, he kind of becomes that side comic relief who, right. like you said, isn't very funny. Um, Cause Bettany steals every moment away from him. He's pretty great. And again, he, this was my reference point for a long time for Paul Bettany was, oh, it's it's the guy from A Night's Tale who announces, forgetting, of course, that he's playing Jeffrey Chaucer, because I don't think <laughs> I had seen this movie since opening night. I mean, I own the DVD, but I don't think I'd ever watched it, which is weird because it seems like the kind of movie that, like, if this was on TV, I would probably stop on it and watch it. And for some reason, I don't think I had. Um, but I don't know that it plays that often. I don't feel like I come across A Night's Tale all that often. Plays in my house all the time. Well, you, I mean on TV. I don't mean yeah, that when you yeah, put no, no. the DVD in. One of my notes, I'm just laughing right now. One of my notes I wrote, this movie is full of sexy men with ruffled hair. Sure. I mean, and it is. Well, and it's really one of the only times I feel like we got Heath Ledger movie star. Because Heath Ledger was sort of, even though he was a movie star, he was always kind of more of a character guy. Um even one of his big performances like Brokeback Mountain, he's doing much more of a character part. And this is a movie that's just trying to coast on his charm and his likability, which he has in spades. Like, I think he works in this kind of a movie. I don't think he was all that interested in making this kind of a movie uh, for the majority of his career. He was drawn to darker, heavier stuff. Um, but it's one of the few examples. I know he made another movie with Brian Helgeland called The Order, which I have never seen, but that's sort of another Heath Ledger movie star movie. Um, but he really works as uh, in this, you know, he could have made a career out of doing these kinds of movies. Uh, and I think he would have been still successful. We wouldn't have had some of the performances that he gave, most notably The Joker, I don't think. Um but I don't know. What do you think of Heath Ledger here? Oh, I think he's great. And I mean, I'd just be repeating what you said, which is that this is the kind of movie that he can walk through pretty easily on charm. And we've been talking a lot about um, Brad Pitt the last couple of weeks. Uh, and you always have that thing where you talk about Brad Pitt as a character actor trapped in a movie star's body. And I yes. think a lot of that might Heath Ledger might have had a similar yeah. kind of deal where Brad Pitt can not sleepwalk, but he can very easily walk through a movie you know, like a Ocean's Eleven or something and just be, just charm the pants off of everybody, you know, and also do something very sort of challenging. Knight's Tale is kind of similar where um, William Thatcher is very much in Ledger's wheelhouse, but the Joker is how he's going to be remembered. You know, the, right. the Brokeback Mountain is how he's going to be remembered. Um, but no, I think he's wonderful. I think he's, I think he's, I mean, he's exactly what, he has to have that kind of puppy dog idealism. And um, 
you know, I, th- I think he's great. I think he's great in the movie. Do you think it's weird at all that he yells out his own name at the end <laughs> when he's jousting? Are you going to start doing that? Like, if you have to lift something heavy, yeah. are you just going to go, Rob? I basically do that all the time anyway, but I actually shout William, which is confusing <laughs> for people. Um, I have a whole thing about that that we'll get to later. But yeah, okay. no, because the movie is about identity. Yeah, it's it's one of those moments where you're just like, huh? Like, what? And uh, I also have... Uh, the actor's name Christopher Cavanaugh. He plays John Thatcher. He plays the dad, okay. um, who literally walks all the sentimentality into the movie, yeah. and it just blooms. And the movie kind of gets sidetracked by that, which I think is a lot of what maybe your, some of your third act problems are, because the movie kind of becomes much more saccharine for that little period when it doesn't really have to. Um, and I think that's a lot of you know watching it now, kind of trying to separate my heart from the movie and kind of just you know looking at it kind of critically. You know, it's very much a like a first time director's movie, and it's very much like a screenwriter's screenplay. It's like wordy and it goes over the top in some places. It goes overly sentimental in some places. The direction sometimes is kind of all over the place. Like there's these scenes where you know sometimes it's shot very traditionally, and then sometimes he's doing like the church scene, which is like that big long kind of. Um, pan you know where it's 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 a long shot of the two in the um in the in the church and it just kind of goes back and forth this big long one take and some of that stuff in the um in the joust because there's just endless joust footage in this movie and he has to so much jousting there's so much jousting and he has to try to find a way to make it interesting so you can tell as a maybe maybe not exactly first time i don't think but novice director certainly that he's kind of like well let's just try this well let's try this let's try this and then when you put it all together it, it seems kind of it, it it doesn't feel you know aligned kind of but um but then at the same time you know he also tries stuff like the whole thing when when adamar gets hit off the horse at the end and he has that weird thing where he's like floating above the ground and the there's the shot from from above looking up where the, all the four of the characters kind of lean in. You know, yeah. you've been weighted, you have been measured. He has all these little things that you can see his imagination just kind of firing. And he's like writing his screenplay and he's like, this will be so cool. You know, this will be really cool. And it's one of those things that like it feels really good when you're writing it. And then you give it to actors to perform or like set designers to build. And you're kind of like, oh, wait, how does that actually play out, you know, in cinema? You know, so some of the movie kind of has, for me, little spots like that where you're kind of like, uh, that was something that was probably better in his head than it ended up being, but it still works overall. I really like, this was his second movie, right? I, I think so. That's why I, I hesitated to say first time. Yeah, because I, well, I know he had made Payback in 99, but Payback yeah. sort of was famously taken over by Mel Gibson, I believe, and recut, and uh, I think he kind of lost control of that one. Yeah. Um I love the thing at the end where Rufus Sewell is floating above the ground and the characters pop into frame and, and say, use his own words against him. I yep. remember in the theater, you know, 18 years ago being like, wow, I've never seen that visualized that way. And it made such an impression on me that as I was rewatching the movie again for the first time in 18 years yesterday, the first time Rufus Sewell says that little bit, um, which is, I think, the first time he beats right? Is it the first time he it's, beats? He yes. Ledger? It's when they're standing facing Shannon Sossaman after the joust. Right. Um, it immediately popped back into my head. When, yeah. I, when I heard him say those lines, I was like, oh, that's right. That's the thing at the end. And they say that back to him when he's hovering above the ground. And that's so cool. Yeah. And then he says it one more time in the movie. And I was like, no, no, no. Now you're putting a hat on a hat. <laughs> like you're so worried that we're not going to remember it at the end of the movie that it has to be his his did you ever dance with the devil in the pale, the pale moonlight, moonlight. Right. it's a it's a princess bride moment right it's a it's a my name is Inigo montoya kind right. of thing where right. it's like you bring it back at the end in a in a more you know in a, a heartfelt way and stuff yeah no i agree and, and i'm not when i say like all these things i'm not saying it's bad i, I love no, it I, again i'm i'm just trying to say like okay well from a craft perspective you can see how some of these things maybe you know like the nike symbol and the armor you know that's one of those things where it's like did he write that because he thought it was cool and then it didn't really become enough of the story to be interesting? Or is it just something cool and we should just let it go? You know, I, I kind of am in both camps on that. Do you feel like the movie does enough of the anachronisms? It, it's, it's almost as trying to have it two ways where it's like yeah. every once in a while, it'll introduce one of those anachronisms, usually with the music, which we can talk about the Nike symbol probably being the most overt I almost feel like it needed more of them if it really wanted to push that idea. 
it's the Back to the Future three problem. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. By so the way, uh, oh, real quick, I started watching Back to the Future two and three. They've been showing a lot on cable over the weekend, and I've watched pieces of them here and there. I need to never watch those movies again. <laughs> uh, and it's not even because they're bad. I just I don't want them in my head. Like I don't want that version of Marty McFly in Back to the Future two is kind of an asshole. Like yeah sort of an unapologetic dick and i don't want that in my head ever doesn't don't zemeckis and gail talk about that where they're like well we realized if we were going to make a sequel with him he's kind of like just a plot device in the first movie because george mcfly is the hero so we have to give him the whole chicken thing and make him interesting and he just ends up coming off as an asshole but he's at least a likable teenager in the first movie and in this one he's just like yeah let's make some money i'm gonna steal this almanac oh would you call me chicken he's just kind of a dick uh, I don't want that version of Marty McFly in my head as I watch Back to the Future. So I, I think I vowed to never revisit the sequels. I think that the Back to the Future 3 little score addition to the Back to the Future theme, the da 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 I like that. Sure. That's what, I, that's what I walk away from Back to the Future. All right, and ZZ Top, of course. <laughs> and ZZ Top, yeah. Uh, anyway, Back to the Future 3, colon... <laughs> Rise of the Lichens. <laughs> but, um, no, so you're looking at needle drops, right? And it's like boys are back in town, taking care of business. Um, those two are kind of just super on the nose. But then you have We Will Rock You in the opening. And that's the thing where you're like, oh, wow, okay. Because it's not just it's not just non-diegetic sound. It's they are the, the right. people in the crowds are singing We Will Rock You, you right. know, right. Um, which is cool. And then Golden Years later um, at the at the banquet, I think rides that line i mean they're clearly dancing to a song that has that same tempo i don't know if it's meant that they're i don't see them singing it necessarily maybe i'm wrong about that um i yeah i i i don't know i don't know if it needed more um i don't feel like it needed less because i know uh one of the things in the commentary track that helgeling complains about a lot is people walking up to him apparently and telling him like you know they didn't have queen you know in medieval europe and he's like Mm. oh i'm so sorry you Mm. know so I can see his frustration by sitting down and being like, oh, I thought this was something really cool. And, of course, audiences don't understand it. That is a good uh, observation, though. They did not – Queen was not really around. Smart. I saw Bohemian Rhapsody and they were not around. Oh, oh right, right, right. Yeah, well, Bohemian Rhapsody you know, is um, accurate. Uh, if, if we want to talk about accuracy <laughs> in cinema, we Roger, need to talk about- Roger Ebert, I think, in his review sort of famously pointed out that, like, yes, it's anachronistic, but having an orchestral score would have also been anachronistic also, because they didn't have orchestras. So. Well, because it's, it, it, it's about attitude. It's about, it's about okay, right. what would young people be listening to? What would be a song? I mean, it's a sporting event. It's a hockey game. You know what I mean? You hear We Will Rock You. You hear, you know, They should have played... Fan edit, Patrick. Fan edit. Thank you. I don't know what that's called, so... You know, I don't know either. I'm just saying fan edit. <laughs> <laughs> I think it should go in. Um, yeah, I don't, I would have, I would have liked more. I feel it's to me, I felt like the clothes too. you know, like Shannon Sossman's wardrobe had kind of has that like, but again, she's the only one. It's like it, it picks yeah. and chooses in these weird ways. It, it's not bad again, Yeah. but they sort of go more contemporary with her. They put the red in her hair and just give her kind of this punk look at times. Yeah. But she's the only character who really gets that sort of treatment, and I get what he's going for in terms of trying to set her apart, but I just feel like there are other areas where maybe pushing the the anachronisms a little bit more would have made what he's going for more obvious so that people wouldn't have been coming up to him and being like, you know, that woman did not invent Nike. <laughs> well, it's the, um, it's the Chuck Taylors and Marie Antoinette thing, right? Right. Where it's like, you do a lot of that or do... You know, none of no, it. Yeah, right. I, I agree. And that's why I kind of go back to this thing where it's like, it's very screenwritery. It's very kind of like, this is my first big chance to do something imaginative and I've got all these ideas where I'm going to have some of this stuff, but not too much. Maybe if he had been, maybe, I mean, maybe he was limited by the production. I don't know, but maybe he, maybe he felt that that was enough. But no, I would have liked to have seen more of that. I, I definitely would have liked to have seen, because even, because especially with the, the Shannon Sossman character, you know, if so much of her character is about, kind of trying to get away from the um, from the conventions of the woman being sort of courted and, and right. the princess and all that. What is she a princess of, by the way? Does anybody ever explain that? Lycans. Lycans, right. Okay, princess of the Lycans. Um, the whole idea of, like, she is the arrow, which is, like, I, that's another one of those, like, handshake things where, like, 
my friends and I will quote that sometimes. And you speak, <laughs> you speak of Jocelyn as if she's the target. You know, she's, no, she is the arrow, you know. Um, she understands that her role in society in terms of medieval sort of courtly love is basically to be an object to be acquired. And she accepts that, but she sort of plays it to her advantage, you know, later on when she tells him, you know, if you really want me, you're going to lose. Um, so she's kind of like, she has this contempt for the whole like knights playing at war thing, you know? Um, and once I, I don't like, this is a reductive way to say, it, but like she wants like a real man, you know, she wants like somebody who is like going to rise above all this. So she illustrates that, you know, with her hair and her clothes and her behavior, like the scene in the church and stuff when she grabs the, the, the priest's ring and she's like, Oh, that is lovely. You know, she's got all these little benchmarks of like almost manic pixie ish, you know? And then, but it's kind of like the anachronisms is sort of underdeveloped where she still kind of ends up a, a, a basically a love interest that stands in the corner and pouts. Right. Um, maybe another example of how they could have done more with that. So it's like, it's almost like the movie goes like 70% on so yeah. many things, yeah. but it had gone over. It would have really, really come together really well. I actually think that the intersection between her and the Prince Edward character where the whole thing is he wants to joust, but he can't cause nobody will joust with him because he's a member of the Royal family the whole idea of Will being like, well, he chooses to do it, so I'm going to do it anyway, which of course proves that he is an actual knight. He's actually brave in the way that all these guys dancing at banquets and stuff like that, and you know, they maybe are not quite the same level of knightlyhood, chivalry, nobility, whatever. So the movie kind of takes all that and, and plays with it a lot, but then it also has, you know, it dips. It has dips and valleys. It has peaks and valleys. You know, it, it forgets about it for a little while, then it brings it back. And so if it had been more cohesive, maybe it would have landed a little bit better. I appreciate that, you know, Brian Helgeland, I think is an uneven screenwriter, but I appreciate that as a screenwriter, he's thinking about some of those kinds of things. Like, I think there's a worse version of this movie that is entirely thematically focused on will and his whole question. You know, you had mentioned identity earlier. Um, but I like that he, kind of adds these other characters who are in a similar situation. And it's not that they are peasants who wish to be knights in some cases. It's they are princes who wish to be knights or a princess who wants to be more, you know, the movie's about being more than your station. Right. Um, changing your stars. Changing your stars, exactly. And so I appreciate that he adds these other characters who are sort of after the same thing, even if they're going about it a different way or, or coming from different positions. Again, I think there are times when the movie is only about that when it chooses to be about that, and then other times it's about, like, who's going to win the jousting match? Right. Um, but that's how drama works, too. So I don't fault the movie. And as you said, even though it only goes maybe 75 or – I'm sorry, 70% of the way there, um, a lot of the times, it, it goes 70% of the way in so many different areas that you walk away feeling like it was a 100% movie. Yeah, it's Princess Bride. You know, it's got that kind of. It does no, some Princess Bride like does a hundred percent. Well, it does a hundred percent. Yeah, but yeah. Um, I love the one thing over along this subject. Speaking about the Prince Edward character, I love the scene um, <laughs> at the stocks where you know Will is, of course, eventually knighted by the prince, who is inexplicably uh, wearing like an Emperor Palpatine hood, <laughs> and he's just sort of standing in the corner of the crowd, waiting for I guess a break in the action to yeah. reveal himself. Um, but I like that he <laughs> he turns to the crowd and he basically goes, this man is a member of an ancient royal line, and fuck you if you say anything, because I'm the prince, right. and I will cut your head off if you argue with me. He knows it's <laughs> bullshit. He knows he's making it up. He just, But it's so, to me, as you, know, you said, like, the movie is about certain things when it chooses to be. That's another one of those things where it's like, Hey, nobility is kind of bullshit. You know, nobility is whatever the nobles say it is. Right. And he can just, he can just decide to make will on paper. What of course, you know, Watt says he, he's always been in his heart, you know? Um, but I love that the sort of knowing grin, he almost, I mean, he almost looks down the barrel of the lens. Like he almost looks right at right. the camera. Just right. like I said, he was a knight now. So he is one, you know? Um, because of course Edward understands that your social stature can be constricting and stuff. And, um, I just really love that moment. Um, I think it's, I think it's really, really funny because he's so incredibly full of shit and, but he's the prince. So nobody can say anything. Right. Everybody sort of agrees to the lie. Right. Um, Which in itself is an acknowledgement of the, you know, the class structure being kind of, you know, bullshit. 
nipples. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. What is the line? And, and I won't remember it, unfortunately. Shannon Sossaman has a great line where somebody says something to Heath Ledger. She says, like, don't say that to him and act like I'm not here. What the hell is it? So they're in the they're in the church and okay. uh, she starts yelling at him about the, this is after the uh, that's scene. what it is yes okay and the, the priest comes over and shushes her and she turns to him and she says something like don't sh- him and uh, <laughs> me and spare him yes you know? yeah such it's a great, great moment such yep. a great moment and you know again the movie doesn't necessarily go out of its way to keep pointing out like oh she's this empowered woman but it does find little ways to do it and and it's not just in the way that she's dressed or stylized but it is in moments of dialogue like that that feel very natural it doesn't feel like Helgelin being like "Ooh, and what if my princess was a liberated woman you know what i mean it's right. not, he's not patting himself on the back for moments like that i just thought that was such a great line you very rarely find at least in a lot of popular fiction that archetype of the rebellious princess who wants to go her own way usually that's well she casts off everything you know, she casts off, you know, her titles and goes off and right. lives in the woods and becomes right. Arya Stark or whatever. Like that's which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I really like that that Jocelyn chooses to work within the system. Yeah. Because she's like, well, no, I like being a princess and I really want to, you know, I want to go to bed with Heath Ledger, but he's going to do it the right way. You know what I mean? Like we're going to go about this the right way, which right. is the the whole thing with him losing and all that. And I love that. Speaking of great lines, she has. I'll never forget the. Um, she goes up to him and she says, what are you wearing to banquet? And he says, nothing. And she goes, well, we will cause a sensation for I will dress to match. <laughs> kind of a hey now. Their she's, sequence, she's a sassy princess. She is a bit of a sass. Um, their dance sequence together, like obviously I wasn't making my uh, favorite moments of the year in 2001, but if I was, their dance scene to Golden Years would be on the list because... I will admit, like, I like the idea of the anachronistic music. And at the time, I feel like that was sort of what set this movie apart. It was like, oh, that's that movie that takes place in medieval times, but they use queen music, right? Yep, absolutely. Um, but that's what I, that's what I, the conversation when I was a kid, that was what the, the conversation was around. Yeah, I think it was for me too. But I will admit, I don't like most of the music that they use. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's a lot of like Bachman Turner Overdrive and uh, Low Rider. And it's like, oh, this is like the worst of Freedom Rock. Why are we playing this? And right. so it's nice to hear David Bowie's song pop up. And then that moment when the when the you know the band playing sort of melts into Golden Years by Bowie and. I don't think he shoots it as well as I kind of wish he would have because he's very stuck on Rufus Sewell's yeah. reaction. Um, this movie has one too many cutbacks to Rufus Sewell in close-up. Yeah, I, I, I want to just watch them dance because it's so much fun. And again, it it takes on a, a, a special resonance now, like watching Heath Ledger, who yeah. we know to be tortured and who died tragically far too young to watch him be so light and happy and just dancing. Um, I think it's the moment where he and Shannon Sossman have them. And I, I like their chemistry in the movie, but I think they have real chemistry in the dance. Um, like, I just want to, I want them to start fucking at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Deleted scene. Deleted scene. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, no, it's great. Their chemistry is wonderful. I even like that. The dance has kind of a modern, you know, a little bit, I don't know anything about dance, but when I say modern, I, I don't just, either. You know what I mean? Like it, it's not when that they do of, the chicken dance. Are you talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. They, yeah, they, yeah. they do the macarena. They do the macarena. <laughs> starts. Shannon Sosma starts flossing in the middle of a of a <laughs> medieval court. You know, um, but but that, even that dance evolves where she kind of comes right. in and saves him because he's just doing these sort of awkward little movements, and then she kind of sees her moment and comes in and saves him. And you know, it's a, it's another one of those great like not another teen mo- uh, movie moments where it's like we all know this choreographed dance. It's it's. It's funny. Yes, it, she's it, all that usher saying, "Let's do the dance I taught you." Like, works so well for the movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like I like some of the needle, needle drops you mentioned. Sort of like Freedom Rock. It's like, hey, hey, um, hey, uh, assistant, I need a song for like when the boys come back to town. <laughs> Wait, I think I have the perfect <laughs> thing. <laughs> so in this scene, he's like, you know, he's like, he's like, he's like training. I guess I'd say he's like taking care of business. You know, do we have like a song? Oh, God. <laughs> guy's like taking care of business you know like because that's his business it's like know? a gary marshall movie all of a sudden <laughs> it's just the most on the nose bullshit 
Speaking of other movies, uh, uh, A Knight's Tale opened number two the week of May 11, 2001, behind The Mummy Returns. Oh, that's disappointing, because it's a way better movie than The Mummy Returns. Bridget Jones's Diary was number three, and then okay. it would drop to number three the following weekend with the release of Shrek. Oh, God. Night's Tale is a better movie than all these movies. <laughs> Indeed it is. Abs, and it's the one that probably is still talked about the least yeah. out of all of yeah. those. Not that anybody's really talking about The Mummy Returns, but... Um, you mean this... part of the Dark Universe? <laughs> Sequel? Oh, God, the Dark Universe. Um, that popped in my head recently for some reason. I don't know why. What a, that that photo shoot of like Johnny Depp and <laughs> Javier Bardem and uh, Angelina Jolie and like I don't know it might have been cool yeah sure I I'm mean, glad we're getting an Elizabeth Moss Invisible Man instead of a Johnny Depp Invisible Man oh for sure for sure um, um, this movie wanna... is also famous because it was <laughs> this was a David Manning movie do you remember David Manning uh, no, I don't think so. Hold on. So David Manning was the fake critic that Sony made up. Oh, that's right. All his poster, uh, his pull quotes on the posters were fake. Yes. Uh, yeah. this and the animal with Rob Schneider and something else. And I don't know. Part of me is like, God, imagine being able to do that. You could not do that now. I mean, people try, but like, imagine Twitter existing when someone did that. Would it matter? I, I guess it just doesn't I, I, matter. I, I, I like, know. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. Like, it's such unethical bullshit to make it up. But at the same time, like, I was never going to investigate. Because you can find anybody to like something. It's not hard. Right. David Manning isn't all that different from Jeff Craig of 60 Second Preview. Or <laughs> fucking Lights Camera Jackson. For, for that, you know? Like, Jackson. it's not that... Di- so... I don't know. I thought nothing of it. I was like, well, that's kind of pathetic, Sony, that you're making somebody up. But at the same time, it's like, it's no different than if you just found an actual shitty critic to praise A Knight's Tale, which couldn't have been that hard. I mean, I know the movie didn't get like glowing reviews, but certainly it got 50-50. Yeah. It's very, yeah. Well, Sony's got a Sony. You know what I mean? (laughs) They are... I, I want to say Sony's the worst, but they're not. I mean, everybody, all these studios are kind of shitty. I, I don't mean ethically. I just mean, like, Sony yeah. makes so many dumb decisions, but most of them do, except for Disney. But we're all slaves to Disney at this point. So I have to say that Disney makes good choices, like a live-action Lion King. That's live not live-action. Action. Lion King, Rise of the Lycans. Um <laughs> Yeah, no, we would all be lucky to live in a world where Sony was the shittiest studio, for sure. Yes. Um, okay, can I talk for a second about um, the background stuff that's going on? This has, I, one of my favorite things is Roland's sort of love affair with Jocelyn's Handmaid that's never commented on, no. but is constantly happening in the background. It's one Played of those that by really... uh, Bernice Bejo, later of The Artist. Oh, wow. She would go on Did to be the lead up. in uh, in the artist, not nominated for an Oscar, nor would she win, because of course we know that it was all the man, right? Because Jean Dujardin was doing the only acting in that movie. Yes, yes. Uh, remember the artist? Okay. Um, I don't really. I'll be honest. <clears throat> no, I don't. I watched it that one time, and then that was it. <laughs> it's um, but it's it's one of those things where it's like it's all in looks and it's all in blocking. And it's just like, you see him looking at her. Chaucer does that little thing where he like pops his jaw back into place because he's, you know, his mouth is hanging open and you just see them talking and looking at each other. And it's not, there's not some scene at the, you know, denouement and the ending where it's like, Oh God, I wrapped up that storyline. I know there was a a farting contest. (laughs) Right. I know there was a, there's a deleted scene apparently that has them together, but like, I like that it's not really commented on. I like that it's just there in the background and it's, it's just something for, you know, if you're paying attention. That's a lot of, like, Watt and Chaucer's sort of bickering back and forth. It's a little bit more of a pronounced version of that. But, you know, it just kind of takes it takes the time to have that stuff. There's that whole, like, sitcom ensemble thing with, with these people. You know, there's the five-man band principle and all that. And they kind of, you know, they really work together. They have really good chemistry with the exception of, you know, like you said, Alan Tudyk kind of being undercut a little bit. Um, but I really like that. I really like that element of the movie because it's not just – you know, there's not just the one couple. Like you said, um, the blacksmith character has, you know, her husband and that, that kind of, I really like the scene where they're writing the, the letter to Jocelyn. I think that oh, might yeah. be 
why my favorite scene because they all get to add their right. little you know their little their little moment to it you know hope guides me and all that and i think that that really i always think when i'm done this movie about how sort of almost unfair it is that will is the only one who gets knighted because of the ensemble kind of helping them up and all that but um i like that they're this little family that all kind of you know trying to help each other it's just so rare i also i also appreciate um because i was stealing myself against it yesterday when i was watching it when jocelyn gets the letter and then heath ledger is asking you know did she send anything for me and i'm like my fingers clench the sofa because i'm like oh here comes the gay panic joke because it's 2001 And rather than that, his reaction is so genuine and delighted. And I was like, yeah. oh, look at that. You sidestepped what I was sure was going to be the worst joke in this movie. He's even got that like Kermit the Frog moment where he's like, woo! Like he right. like runs out he runs out of the side of the frame and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, he doesn't even give it a second thought. He's like, oh, that means she, oh, oh my God. Yeah, right. yeah. it avoids yeah. gay pass. Yes, thank goodness. Um, but it's just, it's a, it's a studio movie that is doing almost exclusively tropes, right? I mean, there's very little except for some of the anachronistic stuff that I would say is groundbreaking about this movie. And yet it, like you said, it takes time for little stuff. It has business on the side. It has margins and movies don't anymore, right? It's like, they're just about what they're about. There is the premise and there is nothing else. And, and that's why I said at the beginning, like it's just a movie that doesn't, get made anymore because there's no obvious target audience for it. It's everyone. Exactly. Which you would think more movies would be made for everyone. (laughs) And yet it feels like more and more movies are made with one specific audience in mind. You know, the movies that are made for everyone are the Marvel movies. And I get everyone goes to see the Marvel movies and the good ones maybe do offer something for everyone. Um, but rarely do you get a studio movie like this that they put some money into that is made for everyone in the sense that, like like we said, it has a little bit of everything. Do you think that there's a problem with, like, immediacy? Because you, you were talking about um, side stories and stuff. For some reason, my brain went right to, like, Ant-Man, where I'm like, well, now the side story is its own movie. You know what I mean? In the Marvel right, Universe, right. a side story is Ant-Man and the Wasp. Well, right. they don't just get to be in the margins of a movie. They have their own series, right. you know, because these are products. But, yeah, because the, the Night Sales is one of those movies. Well, it's, it's the Conjuring universe, too. It's like we right, can't just yeah. have Annabelle show up in the Conjuring movie. we got to give her three right. movies of her own. Three of her own movies. Oh, that nun uh, character was so cool. Well, guess what, guys? Yeah. She's getting her own fucking movie. Nun, Patrick, Rise of the Lichens. You've got to see how the nun rises. You have to know. <laughs> where did she come from? How did she rise, right? Tell me more um, about this nun. Tell me more about this nun. Yeah, but it's just, you know, this is a movie that you hang out with. You know, this is a yeah. this is a, TBS, a Sunday afternoon TBS movie. You know, yeah, you, sure. you hang out with this movie. And it, we don't have time for that anymore. We got to get Avengers Endgame out. We got to get right. Spider-Man right after. We got to do this. We, we got to keep control of the film narrative because everything moves so much faster now. So, you know, it's, it's harder to make movies like this that are, you just hang out with, you know what I mean? Like you just, like I, Adam and I are writing about the Bad News Bears this week, the original one. And I watched both of these the same day and I was like, God, both of these movies are just like really smart movies that you just hang out with. (laughs) They have all these little side stories and all these, you know, they have a nice little wrap up and they have, they have a, a general thrust, but there's so much stuff going on in the background. And, um, I don't like to say like, oh, they don't make them like this anymore, but you know. They don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's a recurring theme of this podcast, unfortunately. Yeah. Couple couple little side comments or side notes I made here. First of all, the lances were hollowed out uh, uh, of bamboo and filled with linguine and corn husks to make okay. the uh, uh, smashing more dramatic and to make it easier on the stunt doubles. Um, linguine and corn husks, also my diet. <laughs> uh, I liked the, this is all just from the commentary. Um, Shot in the Czech Republic, most of the Czech extras didn't understand anything that was going on, um, which you can really see in the beginning when they're doing We Will Rock You, and a lot of them are sort of kind of hilariously off-tempo and kind of just sort of clapping their hands and looking around because they don't know what they're supposed to be doing. I have a quick Um, question about that. There's all those people lip-syncing Queen. Why were they not all given Best Actor Oscars? (laughs) How come come this movie wasn't awarded Best Editing uh, as well? Guys, Bohemian Rhapsody won an Academy Award for Best Film Editing. Yep. Yep. 
Um, here's a question. Speaking of Bohemian uh, Rhapsody confusing... was nominated for an Academy Award for Best <laughs> Film Editing. That alone, we should be in the streets setting garbage cans on fire. Speaking of baffling inconsistencies, I do have a couple questions. Um, number one, why what's with you... serenity? No, I'm sorry. I keep interrupting you. I'm sorry. At the end of the podcast, we're going to reveal the twist. Um, why is the award, and correct me if I'm wrong, why is the award for the sword competition a man on a horse with a lance? Did anyone pick up uh, on they, they, The trophies were one size fits all. Okay, got it. Second of all, the one thing that I was watching it that made me laugh out loud, I never noticed it before. The scene where Adamar is introduced and he comes in and he sits next to uh, Jocelyn, he's kind of mansplaining the tilt to her, like he's kind of saying, oh, you know, a match is three, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Um, did, did you pick up on the fact that his his herald is inexplicably holding a falcon? No, I did not. Go back and rewatch that scene. The the blonde guy, the herald, is yeah. holding a falcon in that scene. Oh and gosh. never comes up again. Now I need to see A Knight's Tale Rise of the Falcons. <laughs> But my big question about everything, and I, I swear I spent some time, you know, Wikipedia research, but still research. Can left-handed people joust? I mean, I want to say left-handed people can do anything. I myself am left-handed, but... Uh... but if you were jousting, would you be able to do... Is it one of those things where, like, baseball players sometimes bat right-handed because even though they're left-handed with the glove? Like, like what if William Thatcher was left-handed? Can he... And if there's any medieval jousting experts out there, please let us know, because I was so frustrated. I was like, are all these knights right-handed? Hmm. Yeah, it's a question this movie is not willing to delve into. To, to quote George Carlin, these are the thoughts that kept me out of the really good schools. <laughs> um, and then, uh, oh, the one thing I did want to mention uh is that Paul Bettany on the commentary track mentions uh, the way that Will's uh, injury mysteriously vanishes once he wins, that he actually jumps yeah. jumps over the fence to run over to Jocelyn, and uh, Paul Bettany is laughing about it at the end of the movie in the commentary track. He's like, he's like, he's like, that wound would definitely get infected and kill Will. And like a couple <laughs> of things, like, he's got to hurry up and treat that wound. They don't have time for this. They don't have time for this cinematic kissing. That's why Rise of the Falcons is a tragedy. <laughs> Rise of the Falcons. <laughs> And then uh, for my English teacher people out there, uh, uh, Helglin mentioned in the commentary track that he read at some point that there was this period of like six months in the 1370s that Geoffrey Chaucer went missing. Uh, he would publish the Canterbury Tales later on, uh, about 1400, and this movie has Simon the Summoner and Peter the Pardoner, um, and the Pardoner's Tale and the Summoner's Tale are both part of the Canterbury Tales, uh, as is the Knight's Tale. It's the first tale, but it doesn't really have anything to do with this Um so that's your English teacher corner. All right. That's all I got. All right. Well, I'm glad you recommended talking about this movie because it got me to revisit it, and it was uh, just as pleasant as I remember it being. Oh, good. That's that's all. I, that's that's a pull quote. That's a real pull quote. Not uh, <laughs> what was his name? David Manning. David Manning, baby. That's how I'm signing all my reviews from now on. Top critic. Top critic David Manning. He loves only Sony movies. Uh, well, thanks, Rob. This was fun. Guys, the end of Serenity, it's a video game. <laughs> Thanks for listening to FS Movie.